Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Culture Cast. This is Dr. Daniel Del Monte. I have another uh, great topic for us, but I want to move on from the Enlightenment. We've covered that in great detail. Uh, covered the idea that human reason is being liberated. Human reason is no longer uh, accountable to a higher authority. And you have uh, major political ramifications, and also it affects art. And we talked about uh, some great theorists of art, including Kant. So the last topic was Kant and his, aesthetic, his, his aesthetics, his theory of beauty. And uh, so Kant was uh, a seminal figure in the German Enlightenment. As I said, the Enlightenment takes different forms in different countries, taking on a very virulent form in France, but more a benign form in the United States, for example. But the Enlightenment, uh, though a lot of its intellectual heritage is still with us, Enlightenment is not uh, that recent. It's a couple centuries old now. And in the meantime, humanity has uh, moved into a new stage. And the name for this new stage is postmodernism. And I want to spend some time and devote several podcasts to this uh, body of a theory. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a huge umbrella term for a lot of different facets. And I want to um, just isolate some of the facets. And so to give you a better idea of what postmodernism really is. So postmodernism, I think, is even an even greater radicalization than the Enlightenment. So you have the very cozy medieval world of human reason embedded in a secure authority structure from a god who can neither deceive nor be deceived. This is uh, the authority of religion that is uh, encapsulating human reason, providing it with some firm guidepost. In the Enlightenment, human reason bucks the authority, tries to establish itself as the arbiter of truth. It seeks an intelligible order in the world. Now, for the Enlightenment, even though they've abandoned uh, uh, respect for a religious authority, they still have an idea of objective truth. So the laws of nature are very firm and intelligible and objective. They're not just somebody's opinion. They're not just a certain ideology or a perspective. All right? You have an idea of individual rights that are objective and, and uh, well-founded. The idea that the individual has inalienable rights to have a share of sovereignty in his or her own government. Uh, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's not this ethical subjectivism that allows different competing views equal viability. There's uh, ethical absolutes where we attribute to a person certain inalienable rights, and that's the basis for 
the revolutions that we see occurring in different parts of the world at this time. So even though you are casting aside the authority of religion, you nevertheless have an objective body of knowledge, ethics that's based upon reason that you find in, for instance, Kant. Uh, you have an objective ethics. He's, he's, he's building ethics as a science. It's not just a matter of an opinion or some meta-narrative for a given culture that's not necessarily binding for any other culture. Um, it's an objective ethics, an ethical absolutes in Kant. And there are scientific absolutes, laws of nature, that Newton and other scientists discover that um, are not just a matter of opinion or uh, uh, the narrative of a certain culture. Okay? So, we need to observe, though, a shift that's, as I said, still more radical than the Enlightenment tradition, which some people are trying to hang on to. And you might wonder if maybe there's an there's a inherent instability in the idea that we can develop our own knowledge through, through, reason, through reason alone, that we don't need faith. And that, that the, the idea of a, a rationally based uh, sovereignty of reason and, and sufficiency of reason is inherently unstable, and it leads to pathologies. Because um, postmodernism, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot. If you follow Jordan Peterson, he's a very interesting and controversial psychologist from Canada. And he talks about uh, the twin specters of postmodernism and then Marxism. They are paired. And, and as inconsistent as they may be, they, sh- they share a compatibility and let me explain that. So postmodernism, instead of having the idea of objective truth and ethical absolutes like you, ha- you have in the Declaration of Independence and the idea of uh, fundamental rights and the idea of laws of nature, in postmodernism there's a, there's a challenge of the very idea of objectivity. There's a challenge of any kind of so-called grand narrative any kind of worldview or religious ideology that claims to present an absolute truth. There are no grand meta-narratives of the meaning of human life and the origins of human life and the purpose of human life. There are no grand narratives allowed um, in postmodernism because there's fragmentation. There's really no absolute truth. There's just a matter of uh, significance that is entirely contingent. We're going to talk a little bit about about Heidegger, that we structure the world um, in a way that is a construction. It's a construction of our minds, a social construction that we generate through our thought and through our language. And if you take us away, the world in itself has no meaning. And so you can see how Um, You're going to have different cultures and even different individuals competing with their own view of significance, okay? And there is no objective significance that is able to be part of a grand meta-narrative. There's not just one narrative you can establish and say, okay, this is the truth. Whoever deviates from it 
is therefore wrong. There's just a million or, you know, really an infinite possibility of different um, takes on the significance of the world. As I said, significance is constructed. It's not objective, built into things. So you have um, postmodernism, which is this uh, fragmentation, a breakdown of the rational order, a breakdown of objectivity. Okay? And you pair this with um, Marxism, which posits a struggle between the haves and the have-nots. And it takes, you know, Marxism has grown more sophisticated over time with cultural Marxism, where the idea is to challenge uh, the overarching mainstream narrative of a society, uh, whether that's religion or certain artistic sensibility, and to undermine it by claiming that there's actually a uh, power struggle going on between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Uh, between the haves and the have-nots. And there needs to be a revolution where society is dissolved and reconstituted under the uh, new authority of the um, newly reigning proletariat. So you see this happening with like tearing down statues. This is something that should not um, be taken lightly. You know, they're, they're, they're attempting a cultural revolution when they remove the statue of Theodore Roosevelt or um, other figures, Thomas Jefferson, um, when they do this, they're erasing history so that they can cause us to forget our history and to introduce um, new principles, standards, and, and heroes. Um, so Marxism seeks to dissolve the mainstream order uh, the, the church, the law, the, uh, the arts, the cultural norms, and seeks to replace them. And so what happens is this unholy alliance between postmodernism and Marxism, where they fit together because Marxism says, even though Marxism itself is a, a it, it is a grand narrative, that's why I said that they are inconsistent to an extent because Marxism is a grand narrative. It, it, it explains um, the development of history. Uh, it explains, it gives, a, it gives us a, a, a coherent narrative that this is the objective truth about uh, the way history uh, unfolds. It actually claims to be a kind of a science, um, a science of historical change. But even so, the idea that we need to challenge the power structure, that the ideology that's that's governing society, the, the, the norms and the, the religion and the, uh, the political uh, structures, they must be challenged and undermined and there must be a revolution. So if you're also a postmodernist, you can justify this revolution by saying that the mainstream narrative is simply a construct. Uh, it's not a grand narrative. It's, that, doesn't, that doesn't even exist because there is no intrinsic significance built into the world. That's just a construct that we can tear down and we can introduce a new set of principles. Okay, so postmodernism and, and Marxism uh, can form an unholy alliance. I call it unholy because, you know, it, it seeks to dissolve any kind of, of, of unity in a society and replaces it with uh, a bleak dictatorship.
Um, so you have these uh, governing principles and norms. Uh, you have law, you have your religious leaders, you have social expectations about how you should behave. And Marxism is a spirit of revolt against these uh, cultural norms. And we've seen it devour uh, various societies. So you see in Maoism the rejection of the so-called four olds, uh, these four customs and uh, thoughts and philosophies that govern society beforehand, like the, the traditional Chinese culture of Confucianism and, and Buddhism um, and respect for your elders. Uh, the Cultural Revolution sought to undermine all that to bring in a new society. And, 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 and we're seeing that now in, in, in America. Uh, this is a cultural revolution we're in, and it's an attempt at it. And what it does is it just creates anarchy. The, the center cannot hold. Um, the, the, the poem from, from Yeats, if you know that line, um, it, it's, it's an it's a attempt to dissolve the social structure. And it's quite disturbing. So I, I do think it's an unholy alliance that seeks to upend the uh, social structure. You know, there could be imperfections in the social, stru social structure. It's not going to be perfect, but if you're going to make change, you may not want to make a radical overhaul. Uh, you could make tweaks and, and, and hang on to what is good. You know, should we be tearing down a statue of, of Theodore Roosevelt? I think not. I mean, this is not a pernicious figure. This is not Hitler. This is not uh, uh, an evil dictator. This, this is someone who maybe was not perfect, certainly was not perfect, but, you know, he, he, he should be uh, remembered and, and, and cherished as part of our history of the, of the people who fought uh, before us and, and built this country. So uh, what happens in postmodernism is this... Um, fundamental challenge to any kind of objective authority. And in this podcast, I want to focus specifically on uh, theology. Uh, Postmodernism in theology was very destructive. It, it gets very bleak. And you saw this as early as the 60s, which is a time of really great change and ferment in all walks of life. You had the civil rights movement, uh, you also had the Vietnam War uh, and the protest tied to that. Uh, you also had in the church, Vatican II, and uh, very controversial and um, polarizing changes to doctrine and liturgical practice in the early 60s and then finally uh, unfolding in the late 60s. So you had this hippie culture, and um, now you also had this uh, radical theology. You had a radical postmodernist theology, and to be honest, I don't even know how you can describe it as a theology because it's called the death of God theology. Yes, it's, it's called the death of God theology. And this is a line taken from Nietzsche, and who, whom we'll talk about in this podcast, uh, where you have uh, the cry that 
God has died, which means that the world has become secularized. Cultures have become detached from any kind of religious observance. Uh, humanity is embracing itself and its own uh, self-centered ambitions, and it is not um, open to the transcendent as even pagan cultures in the past were as they saw their, the rhythms of their life against the background of uh, the divine and the transcendent. Uh, no, in the postmodernist theology, there's a turn towards humanity, a desire to desacralize uh, the e e worship itself. So these are theologians who, who claim to be Christian and, and, and to be uh, members of other organized religions, but they want to suck the life out of these religions. And, you know, because if you're a postmodernist, there are no grand narratives. Religion is a grand narrative. It claims to have absolute truth. It claims to give us an account of where we came from. We came from Adam and Eve. We came through divine intervention of, of, of intelligent creation of, of a new species. Um, we came from a loving God who seeks to save us. That's a grand narrative. Uh, that has to be punctured if you are postmodernist, and it actually it ties into these social justice movements where feminist and um, socialist seek to kind of, in a way, kill God. They want to rid the world of a certain kind of God that they see as having um, political baggage. So they want to kill, they say, the God of the religious, religious right uh, because it supports nationalism and, and preemptive foreign intervention. Um, they want to rid the world of that kind of cancer. Now, um, the, the basis for this um, ideology, what the, the, not the basis for it, but the real uh, platform it, it got, came in a Time Magazine article way back in 1966, which sets the tone for our current state, I think, of, you know, there, there, there are currents going on now that are very interesting. I think there's a shift back of the pendulum um, I do think there's a revival now that seeks to undo some of the radicalism that the 60s brought in. And we have this clash between the, the old generation that wants to um, retain its uh, hippie ideals from the 60s. But then the younger generation is splitting from that and digging back into the past to recover the old treasures of the past. Uh, that the Marxists and the postmodernists uh, so despise. So, but there's an article in Time magazine in 1966. This is right after the end of the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, and it's titled "Is God Dead?" This is the uh, title of the on the cover of the, the Time magazine at this time. I want to go over this uh, article because it created quite a stir. And it gave a platform for these radical theologians proclaiming that they were theologians, but nevertheless that they are preaching the death of God. 
So what is this theology? How does it tie into postmodernism? Let's dig into this. All right, so this is a, um, uh, a theology without God. And, you know, they aren't literally atheists. What they mean is they're trying to reformulate the idea of God, okay? And they, want, they think that we have to reconceptualize our idea of God if we're going to have any kind of um, cultural, cultural relevance for theology. Because there's this idea that we must be open to the world. We must have a renewal and a new springtime where we can communicate with the average secular modern person. Okay, and so you must reconceptualize the idea of God and don't have any more this childish idea of a, a, a humanized God that is like this person sitting up there in heaven, uh, like a, a man with this long beard, and he's kind of looking down with um, a, a, you know, love but also judgment. Um, and people have this sort of childish idea uh, of this humanized figure in the sky that, um, you know, helps you when you need help and punishes people if they stray. Um, now, I don't really agree that there are people who are religious, but they lack a sophisticated understanding of God, that they have just this childish kind of fairy tale image of, a, you know, God, theologically speaking, is, is invisible and is infinite and transcendent. Um, if you're going to reduce him to this kind of gift giver, uh, this old man with a beard up in the sky, we need to get past that. Um, but, you know, I, I think most people are. However, the death of God, um, theologians, it's more about reconceptualizing the idea of God. And really... There has to be, they claim, a, a, a merging with the world, with the secular world. You can't just be here in your ivory tower with this um, theology that is very traditional and, and, and requires you to have absolute obedience to these dogmas. No, you have to um, reformulate your conception of God. All right? And also, you want to be... Um, more attuned to the reigning political ideologies. You want to be more attuned to the political ideologies that claim that religion is just the opiate of the people. So this is the idea from Marx that religion is part of an ideology of the, of the ruling class that keeps people pacified. The whole idea is to keep people pacified with their oppression by pointing out uh, the possibility of a pie in the sky when you die. Uh, it's this fantasy that, you know, you can work your whole life to the bone, but, you know, you'll be rewarded in the end, so you accept your condition. Um, you know, the, the postmodernist theologian wants to, you know, adapt to this critique and, and turn towards a more 
socially justice-oriented, um, public-spirited form of religion, where it's not as mystical or contemplative. It's actually a call to suffer with your fellow man, to join the struggle with the workers. And you have um, kind of weird uh, reformulations of theology, such as liberation theology, which is basically uh, communism, this you know, revolutionary struggle to uh, protect the, uh, the working class under the guise of uh, Christianity. So the, the whole concepts of, set of concepts of Christianity are, are adapted to the revolutionary struggle. That's liberation theology. That, that's a form of, I would say, a death of God theology because it's trying to kill this uh, so-called old-fashioned kind of God that uh, is asking you know, for some level of active service but also uh, prayer and contemplation that don't involve getting politically active and, and certainly not trying to overturn the social order and to erase history as uh, you see with Marxism. So we live in a modern world according to this uh, Time Magazine article where um, some people are just really indifferent uh, there's a kind of atheism of distraction where people may not be a uh, committed atheist, but they're just so busy that they have no time to deal with uh, contemplation or um, prayer, or they just refuse to make time. They're just going about their lives and they're very distracted. And so practically speaking, they are atheists because they don't have any kind of spirituality in their life. All right? Now, um, I want to uh, challenge the idea that there, there, there are people who just are comfortable with not being able to explain the universe, that they really have no metaphysical curiosity about the origin of things, that they can just live on the surface and just you know, watch Netflix and um, you know, do their nine-to-five job, and, and, and that's it. You know, I have a quote from Kant. Kant opens his great work, um, the critique of pure reason by noting that um, human reason is haunted by metaphysical questions. Human reason seeks the origins of things. It, he calls it the unconditioned, this first cause that itself lacks a condition, this primary ground of reality, not the uh, conditioned realities that are um, produced by a chain of causation, but the, pr- the first causes and the primary causes that give rise to everything, you know, the ground of everything. Reason seeks that. And there's this beautiful quote that he begins uh, his first critique of pure reason with. So I'm going to read that. There's a challenge to the idea that, that, that there's people who are uh, deep in their hearts. Are they really comfortable with this idea of, of religious indifference? Where they just don't care and they just kind of live their life and... Um, have their simple pleasures, and they accept the fact of death. I think this is a self-deception. These people are really deeply hurt inside, and there are spiritual aspirations that they are suppressing. So I want to read this quote from Kant. Um, Human reason has the peculiar fate in one species of its cognitions, that it is burdened with questions which it cannot dismiss. 
since they are given to it as problems by the nature of reason itself, but which it also cannot answer, since they transcend every capacity of human reason. So it's a peculiar plight of human reason of having questions that it cannot possibly avoid. By its, own, by its very nature, reason seeks the origins of things. It seeks the unconditioned, the first cause, the unmoved mover, the ground of being that gets it all started. Our reason seeks that by its very nature because we, we want a full explanation of reality. But Kant says that reason is going to be forever dissatisfied with its search for this higher principle. Um, so, you know, the whole idea of people in the modern world detached from any kind of transcendence of, 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 uh, of the unconditioned, you know, we as human beings are conditioned, we're produced by our parents. We are uh, fragments in a larger whole. What is the, ab- the, the whole? What is the absolute? What is it, the totality? Okay, that's God that, it, that, that embraces everything. Okay. Um, but, you know, in, in the modern world, we have these atheists of distraction, okay? You have uh, people who are really practical atheists. Uh, practically speaking, they are atheists. They may even go to church, but <clears throat> their behavior is such that God may as well not even exist. Okay, they may uh, profess a f- certain faith, but if you look at their behavior and how they make decisions there's really no impact of any kind of um, spirituality whatsoever. So what happens in the modern world is that a lot of people, they have this, these questions and these deep desires that Kant talks about, uh, this, this metaphysical urge that's built into and unavoidable within reason itself. And so they have to turn to substitutes because for some reason, the whole idea of Christianity has become tarnished by postmodernism and Marxism. And so they turn to what? Psychiatry. Psychiatry becomes a religion where, you know, you're constantly trying to uh, diagnose yourself and to take these uh, psychotropic drugs rather than turn to prayer and turn to contemplation and get your joy and your hope from the sustenance of of God. No, you turn to psychiatry or you turn to Zen. You turn to just um, meditation or trying to um, empty the mind, to quiet the mind of all thoughts. Um, That becomes this source of meaning that's a replacement religion. Or sadly, people turn to drugs. You know, there has been a great increase in uh, deaths by overdose in the past year. And this is one of the untold stories of the pandemic where you have everyone talking about COVID and uh, it is a serious illness. Uh, but uh, the fact is that there's a lot of people dying, just deaths of despair, really, uh, where they, they crave some kind of escape. And so they're willing to take these enormous risks with these terrible uh, people selling drugs and, and the, the, the kind of crime that's associated with that, where, you know, you hear about these murderers. Uh, that's probably tied to drugs. Why? Because... There's a lot of money at stake, and it's a vicious industry where people are defending their territory. Um, So if you deal in the wrong part of town, that's a monopoly for a certain gang. Um, You know, you see that starting to deteriorate 
in the United States of America where our cities are going downhill because we have these, um, again, Marxist uh, DAs, these DAs who um, really don't prosecute crime. And is it as bad as it is in Mexico? Uh, no, uh, but it's getting there. Don't think, you know, that can definitely happen. It can get that bad. But we're having um, massive deaths by overdose. You know, think of the, the kind of pain that, and, the, and the yearning that that person has that drives them to that, to, that drives them to go to some uh, dark corner in some uh, godforsaken part of the city and, and to buy, purchase uh, some substance from some stranger and to actually put it into their body. They must, they must really seek some kind of, they're seeking transcendence is what they're seeking, right? Because that's what a, a high from a drug does. It gets you to transcend your daily life. And so you have in, in the postmodernist world, people turning to drugs. You have people who who really, they, they this, this death of God theology, it's really becomes a kind of pantheism. So that's a term I want to explain. Um, so you have a scientist saying that God is hydrogen and carbon, or God is thermonuclear fusion, thermonuclear fission, because these are the building blocks and the processes that create life. And that's what God is. Okay, so to, to think about that. These are atoms and elements that are instrumental in, in building life. And that's supposed to be God. Well, that takes away all the transcendence of God. That takes away all the, um, all that sets God apart from the world. It, it reduces God to the world. And that's an ideology called pantheism. So pan means all. All is God. Or you had a thinker by the name of Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, who put forth this pantheistic ideology where God and nature are one. God is just, God is just the whole of nature. God is uh, a, a name for all of nature subject to its laws. God is not independent of the world, but is imminent. God is everything. All right. So nature and God are just two aspects of the same single substance. There's one uh, monistic substance, uh, and there's no creator that transcends it. So you have a pantheism, and what the scientist is saying is, hey, God for me, again, this is um, the subjectivism of the postmodernist, God for me is matter, and that's God. So that's a reconceptualized idea of God, um, maybe uh, introduced to, um, you know, cater to this hip modern man who cannot possibly tolerate the idea of a transcendent being. Uh, no, it has to be reduced and reconceptualized. So, uh, yeah, I believe in God, but it's a God that's pantheistic, that is reduced to, to nature. It's just another name for natural processes. Okay? So... What happens in um, the postmodernist mindset is a 
secularization. It's a breaking away from a grand narrative of religion. You can no longer seriously entertain um, the idea that there's one true faith and that uh, we have an encompassing story that uh, everyone must agree to. Uh, you can no longer really, without embarrassment, go off and evangelize people because by doing that, you're uh, showing disrespect for their, own, their culture and their uh, ideology, making it seem like your way of thinking is better. And that's no longer uh, acceptable in the postmodernist mentality because, again, there is no grand narrative. How can you say that your, your ideology is better than anyone else's? Okay, so the whole idea of evangelizing the entire continent of Asia as St. Francis Xavier was able to do. Mm, you think those people are going to go to hell? Is that what you think? Well, that's not politically correct. It's not, that's, not okay. that's not okay in, the, in today's climate uh, because we are secular and there are no more um, closed worldviews. There are no more rigid, dogmatic worldviews that exclude other people. All right? our, our main uh, moral guide is openness. We have to be open to everyone and to have these settled convictions um, is wrong. You have to be respectful of everyone's beliefs and not really take a firm stand. And so if someone can be a polytheist or a monotheist, it doesn't matter. It's really a, a matter of indifference. We're all open, we're all tolerant, and this is incompatible with any kind of um, a strong commitment to a certain faith. All right, so you know, think of the, the martyrs and the saints uh, of the past. You know, they were great in virtue of embracing their faith and defending it, okay? But that's not the postmodernist mentality. Postmodernist mentality wants to be tolerant, to be open, and to, to be diverse, okay? So uh, you have in um, postmodernism, you know, Part of this is uh, the new uh, power and the new prestige of science. So the art, I'm, I'm going by this article uh, from Time Magazine, and I'll put a link to it in the, uh, in the notes here. But um, the theory of evolution is taking hold, and, and people see it as a replacement, and they see it as a, uh, a way to get rid of the old-fashioned argument from design, the belief that, hey, how could it be possible for humans to be here uh, without God? Uh, just too, it's too unlikely for beings as complex as we are to get here through sheer chance. So there must be a God. Well, Darwin comes along and people say, well, look, evolution, ex evolution explains it. Evolution explains why we're here. Evolution explains that, you know, through adaptation and through uh, struggle to survive and through competition, beings as complex as we are, we're able to develop. And so that does away with the need for God. Um, so this, again, leads to this reconcept reconceptualization of God. It's the death of God. If you want to believe in God, you still can. But maybe you believe in God that is like the evolutionary process. That's God. Uh, not a transcendent being. Okay, so the Bible, instead of being a, a book of truth, 
is now a kind of poetry. And science is giving us uh, knowledge. So in the modern world, you have uh, scientism. You know, if there is a grand narrative, it is that of science. Um, you know, it's the idea that science has the prerogative of knowledge. And, you know, it's the scientific method that gives us knowledge. And so everything, everything else is this kind of vague and, and, and foolish. Uh, so the whole idea of a religious authority, of, of, a, of maybe a pope giving some ex-cathedra teaching, um, an infallible teaching, this is all absurd because we have to scientifically verify it because now we have scientism, the idea that um, knowledge is the sole property of, of science and everything else, any kind of religious authority or, or philosophical uh, exploration or um, artistic appreciation or ethical insight, all that is just uh, kind of fuzzy and, and foolish compared to our empirical data gathering uh, that's so, so crucial in science. Um, the, you know, meaning itself is determined by scientific evidence of, of uh, you know, what's meaningful has to be verified through observation. And this comes from analytic philosophy at the time, that, you know, the statements that are, this is the early 20th century, statements that are uh, not tied to some specific observation that, you know, metaphysical claims or claims about what is beyond what can be observed, they're not meaningful, okay? And so that, that's, that's scientism. That's the idea that knowledge and meaning are rooted in empirical observation. And so any kind of religious discourse really is uh, just subjective and, and, and a matter of opinion. Um, I'm going to close this podcast. It's getting kind of late, and, and this podcast has been quite long, with just the mention of um, the idea of proofs of God by reason, the idea that you could prove through your reason that God exists. You know, philosophers have tried this in several different ways, uh, but for the postmodernist, this is no longer a viable option. You can't prove that God exists through your reason um, Again, there's no grand narrative. There's no objective truth. Uh, if you believe in God, that's just your construction. And you are imparting significance to the world through your own set of assumptions and presuppositions, but it's not something that is uh, binding for any other human subject. So the idea that proofs of God by reason are viable is, is shut down. And you know, in fact, Kant um, critiqued the ontological argument, the idea that God exists by virtue of his nature, that God is such that he cannot not exist. Um, Kant says that, you know, the, a mere concept cannot guarantee existence. Existence is not a predicate. Existence is not an attribute of something. All right, so... Uh, the, 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 the mere concept of God cannot contain existence. It's something that is not a predicate. It's something that is just determines whether a concept 
is instantiated in the world. And so uh, there may be a being that necessarily exists, but if this is just part of the concept, it doesn't guarantee that it does exist. Okay, so, um, you know, you can't just build into a concept of something existence itself. It will remain a concept uh, unless, it's, unless it happens to be instantiated in the world. And the mere concept of it is it's, it's not a predicate. Okay? Cannot guarantee that instantiation. Okay, so omnipotence is a predicate. Uh, infinitude is a predicate of God. But whether or not something exists is a modal status not an attribute of a thing. All right, so um, I want you to keep in mind these uh, thoughts of postmodernism for the next week um, and to think about the, the bleakness of it and you know, how we get out of this. Um, so uh, until next time, I will um, uh, get back to you next week and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And again, if you have questions, email me or comments. Email me at dandy325 at msn.com.